listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining in this second edition of the episode format we're calling Chronicles. Think of it as story time, the kind of life tales you'd share with a close friend over dinner or around the campfire a couple of beers in. Still relevant to our goal of diversifying sustainability narratives, but a little more personal. I think these episodes might actually be my favorite. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. It's just that getting to know you, Jesse, has been such a joyful and thought-provoking journey of growth for me, especially during a time when we are so isolated from so many of our social contacts. So I know it sounds cliche, but my conversations with you have expanded my horizons immensely. And I often find myself incredibly curious about the journey that contributed to creating the unconventional pensive woman with razor-sharp insights that I'm now so fortunate to call my co-host. Anyone out there with me on this? So these episodes give me the chance to indulge that curiosity and ask all the questions we might otherwise not make time for. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Not much of an Instagram person? We feel you. We have a love-hate relationship with social media, too. Sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. During our conversation with Tara St. James in episode 20, we were talking about how in many societies, knowledge of how to make clothes is disappearing. And it really surprised me when you chimed in and said something to the effect that this was also true in China. After sitting with my surprise for a little bit, I realized that it stemmed from a certain unconscious assumption, or maybe the better word for it is ignorance, that I held about China I think in very simplified terms, my whole life, most of my clothes came from China. So the idea that the knowledge of making how to make clothes was changing in, in China too, didn't fit with the singular, quote unquote, made in China narrative that was literally sewn into the labels of most of the clothes that I owned throughout my life. So it prompted me to wonder, as somebody who is born and raised in Hubei province, who, who made your clothes throughout your life? And how have the people making your clothes, as well as the ways in which they've made them, evolved over your lifetime? It's, it's always a bit embarrassing, but also very sweet for me to hear positive feedbacks from people around me about what I did or who I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, but somehow, you know, deep down, I really think I need very good reasons if I want to talk about myself in the public. So when I heard your questions, I I give I give some time of, about thinking about it. I'm interested to share this very personal story because it's related to a question I have been thinking over and over again in the past. The question is, if I live in a big city today and I can only afford a $5 t-shirt, 
what kind of sustainable options could I have? Basically, I'm asking for people who are less or not privileged. Can they have sustainable products in their daily life? If yes, what kind of options can they have? What can they do to have those sustainable products? So at first, I tried to find answers or solutions from a technical perspective. After inspired by a few of our podcast guests, especially inspired by Matthew Gunser. Thank you, Matthew, uh, the guest of uh, the interview of episode nine. I came to understand it's not a technical issue to make a $5 t-shirt sustainable. By saying sustainable, I mean workers are fairly paid. The production process is healthy to the environment and healthy to human. So today, I believe we have all the technical solutions to produce our clothes sustainably. However, the reality works differently. And I want to make it very clear here, if a sustainable t-shirt is not $5, it's not a problem of sustainability. No, it's more a political issue over a technical issue. It's related to how much each government price on environmental damages and how much they would like to compromise the price in order to attract capital in a global competition. It's also related to the inequality in a society, how wealth is distributed or centralized. So when I came to this point of understanding, I felt a bit helpless. Today, as an individual, besides buying from brands, is there any other ways to make our or mine clothes more sustainably, especially I might have limited budget? I have been thinking about it over and over again till one day I suddenly realized China becoming part of globalized supply chain is something just happened 30 to 40 years ago. So where did I get my clothes when I was a kid? I pushed it a bit further. Where did my parents get their clothes in 1960s, knowing China was a closed country and international trade of daily commodity is or was almost zero as at the moment? And I pushed even further, where did my grandparents get their clothes, knowing in 1940s, the industry in China was not widely established yet? And yes, I think in the past, besides the option of buying, my families and I had more ways to have a sustainable clothes comparing with today. Of course, these are very personalized experiences. Can't be an answer to such a big question, how we practice sustainability in our daily life. But I sincerely hope those memories can be a tiny note of a reference that besides buying products, there are other possibilities of having more sustainable clothes. And I'm very curious to know if that would inspire you to dig back into the personal history too. My mother used to make clothes for me when I was a very little kid. That was, I'm not sure, since for adult me, the whole childhood feels like one golden long summer afternoon. But anyway, I think that should be around 1985. So at that time, most of my blouses, dresses, and skirts were made by my mother. She never had, she never made pants though. My mother also knitted sweaters for the whole families for many years. The fabrics and yarns needed were all bought from uh, local shops and uh, or either made locally, either made in the neighbor provinces. 
uh, it never crossed my mind why my mother knows how to make clothes, knowing no one from her family worked in garment industry. And it also never crossed my mind why my mother would have a sewing machine at home. That was a very strong, old and beautiful sewing machine. It doesn't need electricity. It's, a, it's driven by manpower. You put feet on the pedal, make it move. The power will be passed to a wheel that eventually make the needle move up and down. So I took it for granted that uh, she has a sewing machine and she knows how to make clothes. Now I think the sewing machine is probably a gift from my mother's family when my parents were just married. And I guess my mother probably learned sewing half by herself, half into school. She went to a girls' school in 1950s, I think. I need to I need to ask my mother in the next family call. <laughs> <laughs> and another funny thing, Kim, I think you would agree with me is, you know, um, I mean, my mother had a busy job at that time. Actually, every month she had a few days very busy, and she came home late. Today, when I look at my own life and my couple life, I felt amazed that how my mother can keep a busy job and have some uh, further education in the evening, go to cinema and the park with us, and meanwhile, make clothes for me and knit sweaters for the whole family. You know what? Maybe because they don't have internet at that moment. (laughs) Yeah, you're so right. I don't know how women do it. So I also learned how to knit a simple sweater. But Kim, guess who taught me about knitting at the first place? (laughs) You can never imagine. It's my father. Um, my father doesn't know how to make a whole piece, but he knows the basic knitting skills. And that, that, that already surprised me when I was a kid. Uh, in tradition, men usually don't do those, uh, work or they don't know. At least they don't know. But my, my father knows. Uh, he taught me how to start. So I asked him, how come he knew about knitting? He told me he left home when he was 14 to go to a boarding school. So he needed to learn almost everything to make his life easier. That's also a second thing I felt a bit pity today in, in our, I mean, in my generation's school education is that we don't know how to, um, how to make Rose daily life, how to, how to, Make it just work to make it daily life easier. Yeah, pra- practical life skills. <laughs> yes, very practical, very practical. Yeah. So that, uh, um, so my mother used to make clothes for me, but sometimes my mother would also order clothes from a tailor shop. I think China started to have fashion magazines since early eighties, nineteen eighties. It's called Shanghai Vogue. Uh, in my impression. The editors picked up the trend from Japan mostly and some from the, the, the West, but hard to say exactly from which country or area. At that time, my mother would photo the magazine with the fabric under her arm and then go to find a tailor to discuss her favorite style and all the technical points. I was always happy to follow, watching them arguing about the cutting patterns and usage of fabric. So they quickly agreed on which style suited me more or my mother. Then they used the chalk to draw the cutting patterns on the fabric. And that was the moment a peaceful discussion went heated up. 
My mother would insist this much fabric is enough to make a pants or a dress with two pockets and some fancy pleats. And the tailor would hold the opposite position and try to convince my mother reality works differently. Usually my mother won the argument by placing the cutting patterns in a very accurate and complicated way. And that, of course, would add more work to the tailor. But it seemed both my mother and the tailor enjoyed a lot from the argument and the practice. As for me, the most magic moments were watching chalks and scissors turn the fabric into cutting pieces and roast fragments of fabrics eventually become a three-dimensional piece that you can put it on. I would never have imagined or dreamed that I would do something related to making garment 20 years after. As the tradition is to say tailor making or hairdressing as jobs that don't earn respect or at least not enough respect from the society. And that just reminded me the interview we just, uh, we just had with Bapi in episode 21 and 22, because Bapi had uh, similar experiences with his father. He said when his father decided to open garment factory, the relatives would think that is, uh, that is not a reasonable move. Why you graduate from university and go to open a garment factory? It's a similar, idea about which job gains more respect and which uh, doesn't so but it's interesting because what he also said is or what we also discussed with him was if you are a designer <laughs> that's a different story and um we talked also about how when i was in cambodia i had a hard time hiring technical designers who were Cambodian because there were some Cambodians who had the training to be able to do the job, but they were usually sort of middle-class or upper-class Cambodians who did not want to be perceived as having sort of the blue-collar production type of work. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's indeed. And, uh, and this is a very interesting question. I consider my parents a bit old school. So if today, if I tell my parents I work as an independent designer, they would feel very worried and would always ask me if I can make enough money out of Lomit as a living. And I consider it's very uh, practical today. Even today, it makes sense to to have those worries. Um, if So if I tell my parents I'm an independent designer, they would worry about my life of living. And if I tell my parents I work in a big company as a designer, they might have more confidence on the money part. And they they would feel okay with the respect part. But then they would consider it's a white collar job. But then they would still feel very confused or difficult to ex to explain this job to our relatives and their friends. For instance, um for my parents, the supply chain of garment is too long and too divided. I never managed to make my parents clearly understand my role in supply chain as a merchandising manager. It just felt strange, you know, why? And that to me is just so surprising because, yeah, because the, really the only story or the only sort of access point that I had to China growing up was that China is a place where clothes are made. So my assumption is that of course, people in China understand how these supply chains work. <laughs> but that's obviously totally simplified and ignorant and not true. 
that's that's really the thing I even today I felt wow I can see the gap between my parents and the uh, generation and my generation is really big I really never managed to make my, my my parents understand clearly understand what exactly is about to be a merchandising manager it just felt so strange you know why brands and factories need a group of people in between to deal with the orders and shipment Or what about your peers, like your friends and people who are your generation, but maybe don't work in the fashion industry? Did you think they understood your job? Uh, that's a good question. If they also don't work in the trading fields, they would also felt confused, maybe less, but they would ask exactly the same question. Why brands, uh, in between brands and, uh, and factories, you would need And seems very necessary to have a group of people in between to deal with the orders and shipment. Why? So, I mean, so what's your explanation? <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, but to, I'm curious. To be very honest, uh, I didn't manage to have an answer that can can convince everyone or can show them the necessity. I tried. I tried to explain because. Brands are far away. They are not familiar with factory. They are not familiar with production. They 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 are not experts of manufacturing and so on and so on. So they need someone in between. Uh, I explain them. Factories focus so much on manufacturing. They don't really know uh, marketing or access to end consumers. So they also need someone in between as a bridge to communicate. Uh, Uh, to pass the messages of why manufacturing is like this, but not the other way around, and so on. So I tried my best to paint my job as a bridge of communication, which still hard, I think, for outsiders to understand why the gap is so big, why the gap between the gap in my eyes on one side is about um, manufacturing, about how your clothes are made. So this part seems very far for people on the brand side. And from the other side, seems marketing or access to end consumers or be flexible to answer the demand of markets seems also very remote or alien for manufacturers, you know. So, for instance, why buyers need to be flexible about colors or accessories, why they need to change some details at the last minute. This part seems quite difficult for factories to understand. And it's, yeah, it sounds almost like translation, but not translation from one language to another. It's like translation of one set of expertise and knowledge to match another kind of expertise and knowledge somewhere else. And in a way, like this is the value. Yeah, in a way. Value. Yeah, in a way, this right? is the value. You make two words can connect with each other almost mm -hmm. uh, seamlessly. Not exactly mm -hmm. seamlessly, but almost try the best. So I just managed to give this version of answer to my peers and my parents. I don't know how much they, they absorb, but in the end, my parents gave up. They accepted my job in an abstract way, you know, sitting in the office deal with people far away about orders and achievement and get paid. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we had at the beginning of your life, your mom making your clothes, your dad teaching you some knitting. And then we talk about, you describe tailor shops. What came after that? My memory about which year is 
quite blurry, but roughly I would say that was before 1990, actually.、Uh, in my hometown, shops selling clothes were still state-owned, and my mother didn't like shopping there. She felt styles were too old, the colors were dull, and the quantity was so-so. That's why she makes she she made our own clothes and she ordered from tailor shop. But then,、uh, quickly, I think soon enough, probably early of 1990s.、Um, We started to have private business、uh, selling clothes in the streets. So at that time, we didn't have concept of brands. That's a big difference from today. Those private business were more like today's concept of、uh, buyers' shops. So the shop owner went everywhere they can to find styles they believed to be popular, buy in, and sell out after. So instead of saying we followed popular brands of clothes, I would say at that moment we followed、uh, some specific shops. We followed the taste of a few specific shop owners or buyers in today's context. So, if you ask me,、uh, how those shop owners made the connections? That was the moment China was transforming from a strictly central-controlled economy to a market-oriented economy. And when we talk about collections, I think the primary point is where you find your design or how you create your design. For that, I had a few guests, and I'm curious to Kim, what you think about it. My first guess is. I read it from some books and also from people shared with me in life. So some ideas coming from that. So my first guess is in the late eighties.、Uh, that's the time some international brands started to outsource production in China. Those orders became a source of designs such as new styles, new cutting patterns, popular colors, and fabric. So some bold. Businessmen seize the chance to find a few tailor shops to copy the styles or slightly modified styles. Thereafter, they will put products into a wholesale market, which was usually in a big city. So the styles leaking from international orders inspired such business. I use the word "bold" here because by doing so, they carried political risks and economic risks.、Mm. Of course, there there、um, there is a label. There was definitely a label because they want to make it clear: those clothes not from a nameless tailor shop somewhere.、Mm -hmm. Those clothes are made differently. They want to emphasize、mm -hmm. on the difference. However, no one really cares about brand, so the label, the name on the label, brand label, is more like a random name,、uh, just a name. Doesn't、mm. represent anything we know today about brand. Do, was it was the production pretty small scale then? Do you think, like in these shops that you were buying from, were they being made by individual tailors or were they being made by garment factories? There was a transition. It it was privatization in China in garment industry at the moment. So many factories. There is a period that many factories were still state owned. Then you cannot place、mm. your own order. In those factories, you can just find a group of tailor shops to produce whatever you want them to produce. But then, after a few years during this economic reform process,、uh, there are some garment factories become、uh, private business, transit into private business. Then you can place an order in a real garment factory. So it depends on which period, which year exactly we're talking about, or or in which provinces. So it's all different. 
So Rose Stiles leaking from the international orders is one source of the inspiration. Then another source is the rejected products or overproduced items from Rose orders. That's very interesting as uh, such shops are still popular in today's big city. So those clothes were so popular in the market that you have shops only sell Rose rejected or overproduced items. They have a specific name. And... When I, when I lived in Shanghai, there are some very few big shops. Those shops don't have any signs. However, it becomes so famous among people so they can find it easily. Even the shops are nameless. And those shops only sell, uh, rejected exported items or overproduced exported items. Well, it's funny because like in Cambodia, there were a lot of shops too in Phnom Penh around the capital that were selling, like in a lot of the markets you found offcuts and, or not offcuts, you've, sorry, you found um, rejects or overstock. But then there were also shops in Phnom Penh where you could buy also like name brand stuff. And you would have thought that it was rejects or something like that but then when when you looked at the label inside it would say like made in Bangladesh or made in Pakistan so it was imported and I was always kind of confused about or not clear about where that kind of stuff was coming from because it was like you know Zara branded stuff or I mean all kinds of different fast fashion brands were being sold there but it was not like a Zara shop or you know whatever the brand might have been so I don't know. Um, I was always kind of curious. How did these products that were not made in Cambodia, but that were clearly made for these brands, end up being imported into the country? <laughs> I believe there is a underground supply chain about uh, how to make money out from rejected products, or or for any <laughs> reasons didn't catch up on the on a ship. Or let's say rose items, I think, supposed to be end up in landfill, but mm -hmm. they end up in a shop and for people who can buy them easily. So from the brand's perspective, this is illegal activities and shouldn't, shouldn't happen. From, I don't know, today as me, sustainability advocates, I would say, well, instead of end up in a landfill, why not release them in the market? Uh, I understand that profits will not go to the brand's pocket. It's like stealing their styles or creation. But thinking about landing and <laughs> ending up in a landfill, that, that really hurts me. <laughs> yeah. And this, so this, this was the second resource of the clothes we, we found in the shops. Then another source of design actually came from their own ideas, those businessmen's ideas. I think in the late uh, 90s, we started to have Chinese brand shops in the street. A shop only sell clothes from one specific brand. It feels so natural today, but at that moment, it's a new thing. So the shop was displayed and decorated in a group of specific colors with nice pictures of models. And all these elements were trying to create an atmosphere the brand wanted us to feel. And as for Rose Chinese brand, where those brands, where do they come from? I think in my memory, the earliest uh, Chinese brands, some are from Guangdong provinces. Um, and by saying Guangdong provinces, I think the companies or the brands were actually created by Hong Kong, uh, by Hong Kong companies. As young kids, we all love brands. It's new, it's fashion, it's young. 
My mother and the parents of my friends believe that is a waste of money to buy clothes from brands. A typical reaction would be they walked into the brand shop, they touched the fabric for to have a hand feel, and they took a close look at the sewing. Uh, my mother would even pull the clothes apart a bit to check the sewing seam if it's solid. Uh, they pinched the clothes here and there. Eventually, they took a step back with a critical look to have an overall feeling. Then my mother would have turned to me and told me, "It's not worth the money." But we all loved brands. We liked the imagination designed, defined <laughs> by brands and carried by the products. So today,、uh, my my friends and、uh, and me, we would order clothes online from our favorite brands. My mother still goes to her favorite shops in the streets to try the clothes on and chat with the shopkeepers. And sometimes she noticed how I buy clothes. She will point for me. Her favorite shops in the streets and tell me buying from brands online is too easy and usually end up to be a wasting of money.、Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I I hate the thoughts that、uh, sometimes I wonder if I arrive at an age to think, oh, my parents actually make some sense.、Uh, I try to dismiss the doubts and I started to think there are some truths in my mother's comments. <laughs> But it's interesting because what I notice about this story is that your mother is still able to go to those tailor shops; they still exist. Whereas,、um, you know, I don't think that that, in at least the places where I grew up, that that is not really true anymore. I mean, there are tailor shops where you can get things mended and stuff, but it's not common practice to go to the tailor shop, you know, pick out the fabric, haggle over how the pattern pieces are going to be laid out. And then sort of discuss on co-creating a style. I want to tell you, actually, in Shanghai today, there is still a very big market occupying a four to five, four to five floor building. You need a one hour walk to finish one floor. It's really big, and this、wow. market is only for all sorts of、um, fabrics and accessories and tailor shops. So usually, floor number one and number two are all sorts of.、Um, Uh, finished clothes and fabrics and buttons, zippers, and so on and so on. And floor three and starting from third floor, you have lots of tailor shops with their products hanging in front of the sewing machine. Usually, there is just one sewing machine.、Mm. And then many people went there to order their clothes from simple shirts to、mm. complicated evening dress to suits or to some.、Um, Fur coats—that's very rare—or to some、uh, <laughs> costumes. For instance, my friend in Shanghai、uh, is a musician. He often played in all sorts of gigs, and he only、uh, goes to this market to order his、uh, performance wear, his stage wear.、Hmm. And he told me it's a very good choice. It's cheap, cheaper than if he buys from brands, and it's、uh, it fits him very well as they measure his. His sizes, everything, every part, and it's、uh, it can be fashion. It's、uh, it's、mm. all up to you. You can tell the tailor, I want this color, or I want to change the sleeves, or I want to change my color. As long as you can name it, they can make it. One of the things I really liked about being in Cambodia and in Phnom Penh, about living there, was that none of the advertising was targeting me. You know, like the I was not the target audience for most、mm-hmm. of the advertising. And if I compare that to my life. Before that, which was in London, 
I was surrounded by advertising that was specifically targeting my demographic and people like me all day long. When I was faced with this, of, with this task of having to get a dress made for my sister's wedding and the freedom or the imagination that it could be anything I wanted, I sort of had to ask myself, I'm like, well, okay, independent of all the ads that tell me what I like, like, what do I actually like? (laughs) And now that I've sort of removed that part of the equation, like, what are my preferences? Which colors do I like? You know, what kind of do I what kind of a look do I want to go for? What kind of suits me? And I had never really asked myself that question, because I was so used to having it defined for me through without implicitly without even really realizing it by all the ads that I was being um, bombarded with. A market like that is actually give back a pen to your own hands to ask you basically to paint what you like yourself to look like. Yeah. So I want to bring this back to sustainability. Um, It reminds me of a conversation that we had with um, Hansika in episode 11, where we talked about the role of the consumer. And she mentioned during that episode that the thing that keeps her up at night, growing consumption of fast fashion within quote-unquote emerging markets. And of course, this represents an improved standard of living, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, from a sustainability perspective, it means more production, more waste, et cetera, et cetera. So as a as a big advocate of sustainable fashion, what's your hope for how this plays out in China? It's a bit complicated to answer. So first, I think we all agree the consumers with more financial resources share different responsibilities than the majority consumers in terms of sustainably consuming. In those emerging markets, the challenge of the majority consumers is still to improve their living standard, and many of them rely on fashion industry to make a living. And that just makes the whole picture more complicated on each level. And again, as I explained at the beginning of the episode, sustainability consuming, in my understanding, is a more political issue than a technical issue. Or it's a topic needs both technical solutions and political solutions. And that probably needs a 600-pages book to explore all the possibilities. In fact, if I go back to the beginning of this episode, the motivation for me to share this life story is to use the anecdote to resonate to more people's personal experiences. It's more like, hey, what's your story? What's your very personal and unique experiences in having your clothes? Somehow, I say personal experiences as a resource of ideas when thinking about those big questions. So I wish by digging into the family memories, we all can have some fun and get some inspirations. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, 
You can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Oh, 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 oh